Romans chapter 10. What I'd like to do is read through these 13 verses, then we'll unpack it, and then if we have time, we'll see. Maybe read it through one more time at the end and hopefully have some deeper understanding of it. So Romans chapter 10, 1 through 13. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Jews that have not believed in Jesus, that he's been talking about the whole last chapter. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, says this, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. Now, fortunately, thankfully, the first half of chapter 10 of Romans is not all that controversial. As we have gone through some of the chapters before this, this is, there are some things in it that aren't really easy to understand at all. And so I'll try to explain those in a way that will be helpful for you. The whole issue of chapter 9 was that Israel had stumbled over Jesus. And Paul dealt with that at length. And some of the stuff he taught was very hard to comprehend because he taught a couple of things that were paradoxical and apparently not uh, able to be compatible together. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, And so we spent many weeks talking about that. Now, God, through the Apostle Paul, uh, with the goal of this letter to the Roman church to edify them, to encourage them, to equip them for what he had called them to be and to do, he saw fit that we should take this uh, diamond of salvation, the gospel, and shift it just a little bit and look at it from another angle to look at a few different facets of the gospel. 
So we must need to hear this. We must need to hear it from different in different ways so that we understand it at a deeper level. And I think by the end of this message, you'll see why that is so important. And so let's begin to unpack this passage because God wants us to fulfill our calling to be God's people, to walk in a manner worthy of his calling, and to fulfill our commission to go and to make disciples. So let's get right into the text. Verse 1, I've called this Paul's Christ-like craving. Verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire, what I really want, and my prayer to God for them, the the Jews who have not believed in Jesus, his, his people, for their salvation. Now Paul can relate to and sympathize with them. I can, you know, so I'm at the fitness center, let's say lifting weights, and there's a bunch of youngsters in there lifting weights, not Daniel so much, but younger than him. And, you know, some of the language, and, you know, it's so easy for me to like, that really irritates me, and I should go over there and tell them that's not becoming, you know, or I should maybe tell their management, and they should come over and tell them to stop talking that way. That was me when I was their age. I know what they're going through. I know what it's like to be in the darkness. And do, can you remember a day? Do you ever look at other people? And it's so easy to just judge them as, and be all hooty about it, like I'm better than they are, and that was me. I'm thankful that I had that experience. I'm thankful that I wasn't a perfect person that I can look back and say, that was how sad that is that they are living in such darkness and emptiness that, that that's how they express themselves. And that's what the Apostle Paul is experiencing here. He does not forget where he had come from. Let me just read to you. I've got a whole bunch of stuff here, but I'll just read to you from Acts chapter 9. No, no, Acts chapter 26 verses 9 through 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. So then, so he's given his testimony before King Agrippa toward the end of the book of Acts. And Paul says, So then, I thought thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints, the Christians, in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, But also when they were being put to death, he's talking about Stephen. When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Yeah, put them to death. I'll hold your coats. Stone him. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being, listen to this, this this will go with verse 2. Being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And he gives that testimony throughout Scripture. So as you're reading through Galatians, he he describes how how lost he was. And he remembers that and he wants his... Don't you have family members and friends and people in your life that you just want to become a Christian? You've seen the light and you know what they could be set free from and how good life could be for them. I'm sure we've all got those people in our lives. Well, we have to, we should cultivate a Christ-like 
craving for them to be saved. And as we continue on, I hope God does that more and more in your heart. Now Paul understands what's going on here, so he gives a correct criticism in verse 2. For I bear them witness from his own experience that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Proverbs 9.1 says, zeal without knowledge is not good. You hurt people when you're zealous. When I was in college, I was all zealous about this and that and Buddhism and you know, trying to find the truth and all this baloney. And then I was dangerous. I was dangerous when I'd come home and argue with my parents about communism or you know, all this other crazy stuff. A zeal, if you have a zeal for something but you don't have knowledge, that's a problem. And that's where the Jews were at at that time. They had a zeal. They had a tenacious conformity to their religious rules. Are you reading through Leviticus right now? All those little details. They tried to live that out all the time, thinking that that made them right with God. They had a vicious antagonism toward outsiders. The Pharisees did toward Jesus. Paul did toward Christians before he was converted. Judaizers were chasing him all over, making trouble for him because they had a zeal. But Paul said, but it was without knowledge. So they, letter A, they misunderstood the essence of the gospel. You know, some people, spiritual blindness manifests itself in laziness and apathy. If you were to ask them... Where would you go, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? They would say, I don't care because I'm not going to die tonight. I'm only this many years old. I've probably got this many years left. It really doesn't matter to me. Let me get back to the game or the whatever. So there's a lot of people that are apathetic about it. But for other people, like myself, like the Apostle Paul, that uh, zeal, it, it our lostness manifests itself in a zeal for Stuff that, other than the gospel. I wanted the truth. Paul wanted the truth. He believed the Pharisees wanted the truth. They, they believed that they were doing the right thing. But they didn't understand what the gospel is. And that's what Paul's trying to clear up in this Roman church. And that's what we have to keep going after so we understand it more and more deeply at such a deep level. And then as we live it out and experience it day by day, we're going to be able to, as you will see, witness to people so much more effectively. We're going to be so much more useful. But the Jews did not respond to Jesus because they had a zeal without Knowledge. When I was, uh, when, just before I received Christ at Donaldson's, I won't bore you with all the details again, but back in 1985, I was uh, at Donaldson's. A actually, it was after I'd received Christ, but I mean, you can receive Christ and get wacky for a while. So I'd received Christ, then I wanted the truth. But I was, I was a zealot without knowledge. I, I was just going to go anywhere. So there was a Jehovah's Witness on the line I've shared with you that he was happy to study with me every night. So during every break, every lunch break, we would study the witness material for six months. And I didn't care. I was, 
I thought Jesus said, hey, leave your family behind. I didn't care that Kim was all upset about it. I didn't care that my dad had to come to my house and talk to me and try to talk me down a little bit. I was after the truth. I was this zealous person without understanding what the gospel really is. Well, thankfully, God sent a person who also worked at Donaldson's. I had dropped my Bible on the way out of work one night, and he picked it up. And so the next day, he just came up to me and said, what are you looking for? And I said, the truth. And he said, good. Can we meet? So we got together, and he opened up the Bible. But listen to this. He knew I was studying with Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, They're zealous without knowledge. And here's what he said. He said it very graciously, and this had an impact on me. And I've got to remember this, and I think it's something for you to hear. He said, the Jehovah's Witnesses live exemplary lives in many ways. He was so gracious, so gentle. And then he said, they are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And then he opened up the Bible and he showed me some stuff and the lights came on. And I was able to leave that. zeal. I had more knowledge of what the real gospel is. So keep that in mind as we proceed through here. Don't... You know, just do it in a way that's ugly. Don't do it in a way that's, oh, they're stupid, they're fools, they're being judgmental and harsh-spirited toward other people. That's, I don't think that's Paul's spirit here. That's not his heart. That's not Christ. By the way, let's go back a step. Uh, Christ-like craving. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Remember, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He knew he was going to get crucified. He knew his own people were rejecting him, by and large. He was going to go through crucifixion for a bunch of people that should have known better. And they were going to put him through that torture. And this is what he says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. That should be our Christ-like craving for those people who are lost. But Paul correctly criticizes that they misunderstand the essence of the gospel. Now look at verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, what that means in this verse is God's way of making us right with him. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, here's the issue, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So letter B, they did not submit to God's sovereignty, which we talked about the last few weeks. God is God. We have to let God be God. God reveals in Scripture that he is absolutely sovereign in control of everything. He creates some vessels for, for good purposes. He creates other vessels for wrath. He just does. Well, that doesn't seem fair. We dealt with that. He also teaches that we are completely responsible for our decisions and our choices, that we must choose, that we must believe. So, But those two things are incomprehensibly connected somehow up in the mind of God. And we can't put it all together, but that doesn't matter. Submit to the sovereignty of God. 
Let him do it any way he chooses to do it. And he has chosen to offer salvation to human beings in this way. That's the righteousness of God. They didn't understand that. And they would not, when Jesus stood right in front of them, they would not believe. They would not submit to God's sovereignty. That when he sends the Savior, he'll look like that. And he'll do that. And he'll do it that way. And that's the effect it's going to have on our religion. Submit to God's sovereignty. And we'll come to things in a moment that you're going to have to make some decisions. Am I going to submit to God doing it his way or not? And Paul, Paul is brilliant. Paul wrote Romans. I think Paul may have written Hebrews. Those two books are like, they are like systematic theologies. They are so profound and so deep. This guy gets it. And God is using him to write this down to the Roman church first to set them free from all of their misconceptions and all their division and disunity because of their misunderstanding of what the essence of the gospel is. He did that, and then now we have it in our Bibles so that we can read it today. And it can just open our eyes to understand more deeply what the gospel is, and that will help create more unity and more love in the church and more effective witness for the church. So he gives us next his expert explanation. Verse 4. For Christ, Paul says, is the end of the law, literally unto righteousness, a law that would lead to righteousness. Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of it. So... This word end could mean a lot of things, and I think it basically all of this fits. The word means he'll bring it to its goal. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. What did I come to do? Fulfill it. So in that way, he brought it to its end in Christ. Christ is the end of the law. But he's also the end of the old system of law, as it says in verse 4, unto right, a law that would lead to righteousness. Yeah, he's the end of that now in the New Testament, the gospel, to everyone who believes. So it has attained its goal. Now, we, we talked about this a bit already, but we need to deal with it again because Paul does. Why didn't the law work? What, what was the flaw of the law? Why does the law not bring the righteousness of God? Look at verse 5. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law, you read in Leviticus, that's what he's talking about. The Ten Commandments and all the little minutiae. Okay? Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now, in the original, when Moses said that, what he meant was, okay, you're an Israelite. I just took you out of Egypt. We're going to wander through the wilderness for 40 years because you did the golden calf thing. And so as we're going, here's what it's going to look like. You're my people. So now here's what you're going to worship like. Because you're going to worship in a way that shows the world who I am. 
So this is what it's going to look like. You're going to have gold this and, and the altar and the cherubim and the tabernacle that you tear down and you, you just follow, you're following the cloud of, of uh, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. When it raises up, you'll move. When it sets down, you step. You're going to do all of this. So the whole world, all those people around are going to be watching the crazy stuff that you do and they're going to say, wow, what's their God like? You're going to show the world that I am holy. So when you're reading Leviticus, always be asking yourself, what might this be saying about who God is? Why would we do it that way? Because God is holy. God is uh, pure. So go wash yourself in this way and offer this uh, sacrifice in this way to, to purify yourself. And so what Moses is saying, you... You're going to live by this. And if you don't, I will punish you. There's the Old Testament in a nutshell, isn't it? So that's what he's saying there. But Paul is taking this, and what he is saying in this is this. Look at verse 5 again. By the, Moses writes, The man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. What he's saying for us is you, you think that... By living by that, you're going to be right with God? You think that's the gospel? All I have to do, like the Pharisees thought, is just do it all? Just do it perfect? Well, that's the problem. That's the flaw in the law, is if you think that's going to give you eternal... Even in the Old Testament, I'm sure I'd have made the same mistakes they made. But they should have been, and I think some people did. They were able to look at these things in the law and say, wait a minute, no. You mean my sins get forgiven just because I put my hand on the head of this sheep and then the, then the priest cuts its throat and spreads blood on the... What's going on here? The, you know, a person who was really humble would have understood there's a substitution happening here. That's not fair that that lamb dies in my place. God must be saying to me that, you know what? I'll graciously provide a substitute for you. The gospel's there. And then believe it. Faith is there. It's all a gift. Grace is there in the Old Testament, right? So, if you make a choice like the Jews were in Paul's day, here's how I'm going to, I'm not going to submit to the sovereignty of God. I'm going to be right in the way that I want to be right. And the way I want to be right is I'm going to obey the, all these religious commands. Or I'm going to be a Pharisee and I'm going to join a sect and look really holy to all the other people. Everybody will look up to me. They'll, they'll uh, acknowledge me when I stand up and pontificate all my, my theological big-worded prayers. That was their life. And as we studied last week, Jesus threatened that life and they stumbled over him. If in the flaw of the law is if you choose to do that, do you realize that you have to obey it 100%? Do you see that? You with me? That's the flaw of the law. If you want to live by the law, you have to do it perfectly. Because in chapter 3 we read that, the, that all of us have sinned. You have not obeyed the law perfectly. You can't do it that way. The whole provision of the law is that you have sinned. That's why the priest had to make sacrifices for your sin. His own sin first, then your sin. The sin of the people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore the flaw of the law is Nobody can do it perfectly. It is impossible to be right with God by obeying his law.
perfectly. Okay? Now, I'm using the word facility to mean, and it's one of the Webster's definitions of facility, is, is something that is easy or smooth. If you facilitate something happening, you make it happen smoothly, right? So that's why I'm saying the facility of faith. How is faith easier in one sense? It's not easy, but it's easier than trying to obey the law 100%. Okay? Look at verse 6. But the righteousness literally out of faith says this. Now this is a funny little, this is a thing he uses um, that is just interesting. And he's freed, God inspired him to do this, so we need to hear this. So let's see if we can understand what he's getting at. The righteousness that's out of faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? What do you mean by that? Well, he tells us that is to bring Christ down. You don't have to figure out how to do the substitutionary thing. Who figured that out? God. He sent. He loved the world. He sent his one only son. Christ already came. Next. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ from the dead. Did that already happen? God already did that. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the incarnation of Jesus, absolutely essential for salvation according to God's plan, right? Jesus had to become one of us to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then there was the resurrection, absolutely necessary for salvation to, to gain the victory over sin and death. So those are the two uh, essential elements of salvation. And so so those two things, we don't have to do. We don't have to do anything great, anything lofty, anything super religious. I think part of what Paul is saying here is it's readily accessible to anybody. It's available. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's not ivory tower theology. You don't need to go to Bible college or seminary to figure it out. You don't need to be particularly gifted or particularly smart. In order to fake children understand this. It's the gospel. It is, but what does it say? Verse 8. That the word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith. The word about faith. This righteousness of faith which we are preaching. The pulpit commentary said this. The impossible task of affecting either bringing Christ down, raising Christ up, was not required of man. God has done both for us. We have but to believe. Bill still said, this is a gift by God's grace, and all we have to do is to look for it on the tip of our tongue or at the door of our heart. It's easy. When I was... I'm going to share a little bit more of my own personal testimony, so bear with me. Hey, you need to get so, think through your own personal testimony, your own experience, and it is absolutely unique to you. But you need to be so in tune with it, and you need to be, it needs to be so meaningful to you 
Because you've looked back and you've seen how God has worked in your life. That's going to help you when you explain to this person that you're not judging harshly anymore, but you're relating to because you were probably there. You're going to be able to share your testimony so much more effectively if you really look back and see what God did in your life. And that's, so that's all I'm doing. But when I was meeting with my friend Verl, he was, he was sharing the gospel with me one night. We were up in the cities. We were at a restaurant. I drank like five cups of coffee. So I had all night long to think about what we talked about. And so we were sitting there talking, and I, oh, I just remember saying to him, I, I can't believe. I just can't. And he gave me those precious five words that just God used, along with Revelation 3.20, to make me so anxious and uh, wanting what he had because he just had it and I didn't. He had peace. And these were his five words. When I said, I can't believe, he said it would be so easy. And it really, that was part of what happened in the next several weeks when I just kept like, why am I here? What is this all about? Where am I going? Where, what, what is death all about? And all those things that were tormenting me. And then it would be so easy. That, that was part of what I did when I turned on the welder and said, I don't even care anymore, Jesus. I don't care if I'm wrong anymore. I'm so sick of being anxious. And I'm so sick of being afraid. And I'm so sick of being feeling like I'm here for no purpose whatsoever. I know there's more to life than that. And I just turned. But it was that, that just be a child, like a child. Just accept it. Just give up. Isn't that what Jesus has been teaching us in Luke chapter 11? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and just follow me. I think that, I think is pretty much (coughs) what Paul is saying here. It would be so easy. And now then he just unpacks what I've called the guts of the gospel. This is it. Some of these verses really every Christian should memorize. Because this is it in a nutshell. If, you, if, you only got, if you're in an elevator and you only got 30 seconds, you better know this. Right? So here it is. Verse 9. That. This is the word of faith which we are preaching and all he means by that little phrase, word of faith, there's been a denomination formed, a movement formed over called the word of faith movement, which has, I just don't think that's why Paul wrote this. He, all he's saying is, so it's not the righteousness by the law, it's the message about faith. It's the message that we're preaching. End of verse 8, which we are preaching. That, here it is, there's the guts of the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord. Now, don't take this to be a formula so that it becomes a law, so that you think if you just do it, something magical happens. That's not what he is saying here. What would a mute person do? Or a dumb person who couldn't speak? Are they they're lost? That's not his point. So what is he saying here? Let's go after the guts of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For 
Now he rearranges the order, so don't get hooked up on the order. It's all the one thing that happens when we're saved. Verse 10, for with the heart, man believes. We, we can get that, can't we? Resulting in or unto righteousness, being made right with God. And with the mouth, he confesses unto salvation. It's all one thing. When you believe in your heart, if you truly believe, you're going to, like I told the kids, you're going to act on it. You're going to confess. If you really believe in Jesus and you really receive him and he really changes your life, are you not going to talk about it? Are you not going to know that he's the Lord not only of the universe, but he's the Lord of your life now? I didn't understand all that stuff when I let him in, when he was knocking at the door, but I knew it was all part of the package. When it happened, it happened. You just receive Christ. And then, of course, you're going to confess with your mouth that he is the Lord. So it's not some rigid formula. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I love the last phrase of just as I am song, where it says, you know, just as I am without one plea. Then it gets to that last verse that we sing, because, and I always want to repeat that and sometimes do, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Period. The kids come up here because they know they're going to get a gummy bear because I do it, I've only missed, I mean, I only forgot once in all these years. They know it. That's what salvation is. It is God's promise in these verses. If you believe in your heart, but the heart man believes, and you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, you submit to the sovereignty of God, you believe in Jesus, that he's the only way to be saved, that he is God's, and all I can do is trust him. Trust that his death on the cross, that his performance, that his pedigree gives me salvation. That's all I can do. Whoever believes, this is the, for the, look at verse 11, this is it. For the scripture says it. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction. Now in Rome, it was between the Jews and the Gentiles. There is no distinction, Paul says, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of, watch how often he uses the word all. Panta. All. Abounding in riches for all who will call upon him. For whoever, meaning anybody, accessible to anybody, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can, um, an illustration I heard years ago that has really been helpful for me, so don't pick it apart too much. All illustrations break down at some point, but just get my main point here. Salvation, let's say salvation is like a blue coat. Okay? A beautiful navy blue coat that you put on when you believe in Jesus. When you're really born again and you receive Christ and His Holy Spirit, you know the whole thing. It comes to live inside. You're a new creature. You put on this blue coat. Everybody, anybody got a blue coat on in here? Anybody got a blue coat on in here? Raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. You've, got, you've put the blue coat on. Now, 
Sometimes people with blue coats on, we are raised in different uh, religious contexts, and we get taught things from early childhood. Sometimes some of the religions that we get raised in, like the one I was raised in, you put a lot of ornamentation on the coat. You put a badge here and a ribbon and little pins, and you, you, pretty soon you can hardly see the coat anymore. But the issue is, the guts of the gospel is, but are they wearing the coat? Because I've put some ornaments on my coat too. I've got some things that I believe in. I've got my own personal convictions. But if I believe in the bullseye stuff, I've got the coat on. So my coat looks a little different than your coat as far as the stuff that we have decorated ourselves with. But the important question for us to try to get at with the people in our lives that we have a, a burden for is, but do they have the coat on? Have they understood the essence of the gospel, the guts of the gospel? Have they received Christ according to the actual righteousness that comes by faith? And if they do, I have to be open to the possibility they, there's a code on there somewhere underneath all that outward religious stuff. Does that make sense a little bit to you? Whoever. So I've got to be, I've got to be careful about being judgmental toward people and saying their code doesn't look like mine, therefore they're not saved. Now, I'm not compromising the gospel at all. I'm just saying that We've got to embrace what Paul is saying here. The essence of the gospel is, has that individual, and if they haven't, maybe you can help them navigate through. You've got, a, you've got all this ornamentation that you're trusting in, and is there a blue coat on under there or not? And help them see that. Have you believed in Jesus? Give them the, the essence of the gospel. And then you're going to be able to be much more winsome and effective in the way that we lead people to Christ. Another Jehovah's Witness thought. They're exemplary people in many ways. They're sincere. So I'm not cutting them down in a bad way. I'm just, but I am uh, accurately criticizing what they teach. Um, if they come to your door... Don't argue about the Trinity. They will chew you up and spit you out. They know how to play that game. You will not win that discussion, period. You won't. I mean, if they come to you and say, I'm confused, please help me, that's one thing. No, if they're coming to your door, knocking on the door with one mature one and one less mature one, they're there to proselytize you, okay? Don't get into an art. Don't get drawn into the arguments that they're trained to do. They're really good at it. Don't do that. The most effective conversation I've had with one was actually Naomi, my niece from uh, now Baltimore. When, you, when your family lived in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door. And I don't know which one of you girls came with me. I said, come here. We're going to have fun with this. So went, opened the door. As soon as they started getting into their spiel and asking you questions, you said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so we're talking about God, right? We're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about salvation, that kind of stuff. Yeah, here's what you do. You say, can I just ask you a question first? Um, no, no. Does the Bible not say that he who, and then quote this verse or a verse like it, that whoever 
believes if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you believe that? Now, they, they, they say they believe in everything the Bible says, so they'll say, yeah, I believe that. I'll say, great, so I'm saved. So I'm a born-again Christian. I've done this. I confess Jesus Christ is my Lord. And then give them the gospel. I believe he died on the cross. Give them the whole gospel. If nothing else, they just heard the gospel. You didn't just waste 20 minutes arguing about stuff and then they leave mad and you slam your door on them. They hear the gospel. And then, then you, and the older one, the more mature one will be like, getting real fidgety. We need to leave at this point. The younger one will be staring at you saying, I never heard that before. So you share the gospel with them and then you say, so I'm born again. Are you born again? I mean, you believe that, right? Yeah, I am. So we're brothers, right? I mean, we're good. Uh, you got to become a witness. See, then you can expose what they're really saying. So, you know, so what you're really saying is this, aren't you? Which contradicts this. So just keep it super simple. It's so easy. If you really understand the guts of the gospel and live it to the point where you're going to then be able to share it in different ways with different people, different kind, you can discern what do they really need to hear. But that will not happen if you live a life that's like got Jesus in there, but I'm living my own life. And then uh, if I do get the chance because I'm supposed to be witnessing, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They get trained how to go out and give a can presentation and then, you know, give the gospel and this, 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 and this. You got to confess with your mouth and make it a formula. That's not how the Holy Spirit really does it effectively. So I'll stop there. Let me wrap it up with this. Calling on the name of the Lord is simply from your soul, from your heart, just crying out to God out of a humble place of just help me, Lord. Deliver me, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. And God saw fit that through Paul, he would write this letter, and he decided that we need, the church needs, to look at the gospel from this angle to accomplish some work in each one of us. And I trust he's doing that in you today. So that we will not misunderstand the essence of the gospel. We do not want to refuse to submit to God's sovereignty. God is God. Let him do it his way. We need to understand the flaw of the law. We need to understand that faith is really quite simple. It's, as Jesus said, like these children, just, you've got to trust me. And then we of course, want to understand better the guts of the gospel so that we can cultivate within our hearts a Christ-like craving to lead other people to Christ. Less judgmental, less condescending, less smug, not apathetic, but zeal with knowledge. That's what I want for each one of us. So that we show it. We know we, we love people enough to really listen to them and discern where they're at and what they struggle with and how to witness to them and how to pray for them. And then show it to them and share it with them and let them know too. They can have what 
I have. And it would be so easy. Don't misunderstand that. So will you bow your heads with me, please?